Today on Pediatrics Now, Dr. Tess Barton, infectious disease at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital, is joining us back on the show. Hi, Tess. Thank you so much for being here again. Thanks for having me again. So I know you're just back in the country from a trip. How was it? It was great. It's always it's always refreshing to take to take a vacation. So so much much needed rest, you know, escaping to the English countryside with basically no internet and no phone and, you know, petting sheep and romping around the moors and that was lots of fun. I hear there's a a king now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess a little thing happened over there. We we were we were there during that time, but we didn't we didn't really? go to the coronation. We we actually watched it um, from a pub in, in Abergavenny, which is a little town, you know, like all the other, like the regular Brits do. And how was that? That must've been fun. That was lots of fun. And did you bike through the countryside, hike? Like, no, there you we rented a car right? we drove and, and then we hiked. Yeah. We did lots of little hikes in, in, in some national parks and, and, um, we were actually, we're going to see the watership down sites, you know, from that, from the novel. Um, mm-hmm. so we went to go look at some, you know, hillsides with rabbit warrens. And it was wow. a pretty nerdy trip, but it was lots of fun. And my friend who's from there, she said like, it's not like in the United States or in Texas in particular, you can, you could hike or go on a walk on anyone's land. Like it's just open for walking. Did yeah, like- well, you know, I don't, I, I, I hope so, because that, that's sort of what we did. And I, I, you know, since we were on this sort of rabbit theme trip, I did feel like maybe we were trespassing on Farmer McGregor's garden or something. But <laughs> but luckily, nobody came after us. Well, welcome back again. And I'm, I'm, I really appreciate you taking time to, to talk about this. So here we are with part two. Um, involving strep, and we've gotten questions from our pediatric practitioner listeners about what is your advice about what to do when it isn't going away or keeps coming back, or is that the same thing? <laughs> I think they 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 may, may be the same thing, and they may be different things. This um, so this is a great question because this is actually a pretty common common problem that we see with strep you know, strep or group A strep is um, humans are really the reservoir for this bacteria. And so, you know, it's for the ages, this has been a thing that causes us infections and and it gets around simply because we share it with uh, with each other. Mm. So there are people who are carriers of this bacteria in their throats and um, and they're largely responsible for making sure that it continues to circulate uh, among among us humans. Hmm. So um, so there when we when we have kids who are either having repeated bouts of strep throat that can look like you know that they've got their sore throat they've got their tonsillitis they get their penicillin or amoxicillin treatment um, they get better. And then, boom, they have it again. Um, maybe, maybe quickly. It may be, you know, maybe they don't get it like right away. It could be that kids who get strep throat, like, oh, every month I'm having strep throat again, um, multiple times a year, or that they have kind of a a series of strep throats, one after the other, um, shortly following treatment. Um, when you see that pattern that does suggest that either that child or somebody around that child 
is carrying the bacteria in their throat. And so you treat it, but boom, it just comes right back again, either because it's sort of hiding inside a tonsil or an adenoid and given an opportunity, it just sort of pops back out again, or because they clear it and then whoever had it just gives it right back to them again. Um, penicillin and amoxicillin are essentially the same as far as their effectiveness against, against strep throat. Um, and so that should be the first line, you know, unless somebody is penicillin allergic. Um, there are, you know, there are a little bit more treatment failures with penicillin than with some other antibiotics. And there have been a few different um, mechanisms proposed for that. So one is just what I kind of mentioned is, is, is if somebody is a carrier, you can have strep that are living even intracellularly, even inside cells um, where the antibiotics can't get to them or kind of embedded deep in a tissue where, where they're sort of relatively protected and, um, and then the antibiotics don't manage to fully eradicate them. The other thing is that, you know, strep doesn't live by itself in your throat. Like there are many friends, right? We have many, many different types of bacteria that live in our throats. And some of the bacteria that live in our nasopharynx, like in the back of our nose or in our throat, some of those bacteria make what are called beta-lactamases, which is an enzyme that deactivates penicillin. And so even though the penicillin would be perfectly adequate for treating strep, strep's buddies are producing an enzyme that's getting rid of the antibiotic and therefore it's not killing the strep because it's being deactivated by other things. And so in those circumstances, you know, people there that this is one of the rationales when people would use a cephalosporin or even cefcraxone injections or augmentin, which is amoxicillin clavulanic acid, things that have extra activity against beta-lactamase producing organisms. And it's not because those are stronger at treating strep, it's because they sort of wipe out all the guys around the strep that are protecting it. Um, and then the third possibility is that sometimes the other guys that are there create biofilms and biofilms are basically a slime um, that is just a sort of, you know, gelatinous protective layer that bacteria can go hide in where antibiotics can't get to them. And so strep can go and hang out in the biofilm just like everybody else, even if it's not producing the biofilm. Okay. So then what do you do at that, at that point? Yeah. So, so part of it, you know, uh, of dealing with these recurrent streps is first of all, kind of sussing out the pattern. Um, and, and, and so the first thing is trying to decide is, um, is the child a strep carrier? Is the child themselves a strep carrier? And um, and so the the basic way of doing that is to, if it's somebody who's had recurrent strep throats, is when they are not having strep throat after they finish their treatments and they're doing fine, would be to collect a throat culture. Um, so not the rapid strep, but the throat culture at that time and see when they're perfectly asymptomatic and feeling well, are they still growing strep from their throat? And that's sort of a way of proving that somebody is, is a strep carrier. Um, the, uh, one of the challenges with recurrent strep is sometimes differentiating it from a person who has a strep carrier who got something else. So they happen to have strep in their throat because it lives there, but they just got rhinovirus or adenovirus or COVID, right? So they just got something different, but because they had throat symptoms and you swab their throat 
you know, for a, a rapid strep test or even a culture and you found strep, you blame it on the strep, but maybe the strep was just hanging out there and not actually the thing causing the problem. And that's the thing that's a little bit trickier to try to sort out. But it's not that hard to really sort out if somebody themselves is a carrier. And if they are a carrier, um, you know, we we you you know we normally if it's not causing a problem they're low risk you know maybe maybe you don't do anything about it but strep throat is fairly intrusive and it does force you to miss school and to miss work and you know you do there is this sort of in the back of our mind the risk of developing rheumatic fever with recurrent strep throats so um, it probably is worthwhile perhaps attempting to eradicate the strep from the throat um, maybe before you send them to the ENT, because, you know, certainly getting rid of the tonsils is a tried and true way of reducing recurrent strep throats, because that's where the bacteria is living. But, um, but it is invasive and painful for the child and, and eliminates a piece of their immune system, right? I mean, your tonsils are there to serve a purpose. Um, and, and so if you can potentially get rid of it without removing the tonsils, um, that may be worth a try. And if, if a child does have a tonsillectomy, how much does that affect their immune system or is it I mean, known? it doesn't affect your systemic immune system. Like your all your white blood cells are making their antibodies and, you know, secreting their cytokines and helping you to fight off infections. You know, your, your tonsils are, are essentially just a collection of immune system cells that are that are aggregated at the entry point where infections try to get into your deeper deeper places right so we are filled with bacteria in our mouths and our noses but we don't have bacteria in our lungs our lungs should be sterile and so the job of your tonsils is to kind of catch all the stuff before it wiggles its way farther in the same with your adenoids this is to catch the stuff that's coming down your nose before it makes its way down into your airways um, and so, you know, I, I don't, it's not like a massive change in your immune system if you get your tonsils out, but you know, you, they, they are there for a reason. They're, they're supposed to be helping you, not hurting you. And if they are hurting you, then it's better to get it out. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if they're, if they're causing problems, if they're obstructing, if they're harboring, you know, if they're harboring bacteria that just won't go away, then, you know, sometimes it's time for them to go. So. Um, is there anything else you want to say about this strep uh, before I, I ask you these questions from one of our pediatric practitioner listeners? I, I do think that, um, you know, there there are, I mentioned that, you know, there may be worthwhile doing an eradication. And there are, you know, in the AEP and in the Red Book, there are some like guidances for like who should get eradicated, who should have a carrier state eradicated. And what are some of the best regimens for doing that? And I thought maybe that was something that pediatricians, just from a practical standpoint, might want to know. Because if it if you don't go through that eradication process, does it stay in the body throughout life? Not necessarily. I mean, some people eventually clear their strep as they, you know, grow up and their immune systems figure it out or it gets outcompeted by other other bacteria. Um, but uh, but you know, it is it is an unpleasant bacteria to have when it's causing you a problem or when it's causing your family members a problem, right? Yes. Okay. So tell us about that process. Okay. So, so the, the, the sort of things that the AAP recommends, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends as far as when to treat 
suspected carriers um, is when there is like a local outbreak, um, like a whole lot of cases, maybe in one school or in one, you know, long-term care facility or something like that, particularly if they're complicated cases. So if they are invasive group A strep, or if they have rheumatic fever or glomerulonephritis or one of the complications of strep, um, indicating that the strain that's going around is particularly problematic, um, then we would then we would consider, you know, treating any identified carriers. If there's a family history of rheumatic fever, because that sort of raises the stakes of having repeated um, repeated strep infections, or if it's sort of ping-ponging around in the family, like everybody in the family keeps getting it one after the other after the other, and you can never get rid of it because somebody's carrying it and they're sharing it over and over again. Um, and also if somebody's being considered for a tonsillectomy as a way of potentially avoiding the tonsillectomy. And then as far as what we do, there are different, there are different treatment regimens that have been um, studied. And this is not new. Actually, this goes, I was, I was pulling up the, I was pulling up the trials and it's sort of a comparative observational study published in 1984. So these are not like super cutting edge things, but, <laughs> um, but what's kind of fallen out as the, as the, the favored um, treatment to, for strep eradication is, is, either 10 days of clindamycin or 10 days of penicillin plus four days of rifampin. Um, you can also do the rifampin with the clindamycin. So um, either of those have been shown um, to be superior to just penicillin alone um, for doing eradication. And the rifampin is nice because the rifampin can kill bacteria that are hiding inside cells. And then it's important to make sure though that that child is a carrier before taking that step. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't have to do that. I mean, sometimes you can, you can figure that out if somebody's really just having recurrent strep one after the other, after the other. But if, but if it turns out that like maybe the child's not a carrier, but their sibling is, and then you subject this, you know, kiddo to clindamycin and rifampin and it's somebody else who's the carrier, then they might just get infected all over again. Well, and here in San Antonio, this part of the country, I just, I spend a lot of time in with pediatricians and pediatric practitioners and clinics. And it's what it, it seems like everyone's talking about, like right now we're seeing a lot of strep. We, we are seeing a lot of strep. I mean, there's just been a lot of strep going around period. We've also seen a lot of invasive group A strep, like more invasive diseases with that strep than, than what we have traditionally seen. Um, and and the other problem, as I mentioned, is that we also have all the other, you know, viruses and all the other allergens, right? So it just was raining like crazy for mm. the past couple of weeks. And now, you know, all of the molds and all of the pollens are everywhere, right? Because the trees are happy. So they're squirting out their pollen like crazy. And the mold is growing in the, in the moist soil. And so everybody's allergies are flared up. So again, if somebody has an allergic pharyngitis and they happen to be a strep carrier, you might think that it's strep throat when really it's their allergies. So we kind of have everything, you know, coming together all at once. And so take the time to go through that process that you described. Yeah. Um, I think that's really valuable. And when should we refer out to you? When should that happen as, as opposed to an ENT doctor? Um, either... 
any any time. Like if if a pediatrician feels like they are, you know, they're kind of at their wits end, they've been dealing with it, and they and they want to send them to to see me to do the eradication or to kind of you know, sit down and get all of the information about the family contacts and, you know, who else might need to be treated. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Um, and so I know sometimes pediatricians are super busy and they don't really have time to to do that. And um, yes. and so that maybe that's a good time for the infectious disease consultant. And you see patients, as a reminder, at, at, at University Hospital in your infectious disease. I do. Hospital. I see patients at yeah. University Hospital one half day a week <laughs> for now. And where else do you see, do you see patients anywhere else now? At the moment, I don't. Um, the, the, the plan is hopefully for me to see patients also at a, at a UT clinic. Um, but, uh, you know, but it's just, it's a matter of, it's a matter of manpower and scheduling. Um, but my, yeah, I see, I see my infectious disease patients at University Hospital and I see my HIV patients at University Hospital in a separate clinic. In the downtown location, Robert. That's correct. Green. Yeah. What floor are you on at University Hospital? Uh, from the ID clinic, I'm on the yes. I'm on the Rio Tower fifth floor. Okay, and we will we'll put referral information in the text for this podcast, and we could put the doctor to doctor number. One of our pediatric practitioners, um, she has a few questions. She says we will do ten days of amoxicillin. And I have seen several come back with typical strep symptoms one to two weeks later, including my own child with strep positive. And several who have had three to four episodes of strep tonsillitis in this past year. Should these kids see ENT reviewing info on tonsillectomy? Um, is it indicated in these kids? I'm fairly certain I know the answer from reading, but I think these would be excellent topics to hear from the expert. Great. So I think that there's actually some valuable information in that question. So one um, one is 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 that she's describing the pattern of of kids who are you know coming back with frequent strep infections, either that they completed their antibiotics and then right away they have it again. That kind of implies that maybe there's other bacteria there that were shielding the strep from from getting treated, or perhaps that the child is a carrier. Um, or the ones who are just kind of getting it frequently, like they're just getting it multiple times a year. Um, and so in the ENTs actually have their own criteria for tonsillectomy. And, um, and I think it's something like four to six episodes per year of, of strep pharyngitis or associated with um, obstructive sleep apneas or things like that. Um, and so, uh, so it may be that it's time to have the ENT evaluate them, but but probably you know, the the next step is you know thinking about when they came back with their strep infection, did they were they was it a clear cut typical strep right like like she described, or was it maybe a virus infection that happened to be you know the person happened to be a strep carrier? Were there any other household members who also got strep? Because that's a sign that it actually is truly a strep infection. Is that is that you know it's spreading around through the household? Did they respond to antibiotics right away? So strep pharyngitis or tonsillitis usually within 24 hours they feel remarkably better. Um, whereas if you have a viral infection because the antibiotics don't do anything for that, it still kind of continues to run its course. Um, and then I think the next step in this particular pediatrician's patients would probably be trying to see those children when they are well 
and culturing them between to see are they actually a carrier that might warrant eradication before sending them to the ENT. Okay, great, great to know. And is all of this happening because of the pandemic? I mean, I think at this point, no. Like, okay. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, COVID like, is enough still about around, blaming the pandemic. Right. <laughs> COVID is still around, and but um, you know, I we we do know that like COVID and and a number of other infections can be somewhat immunosuppressive. So you get your virus infection and then you get set up for, you know, your immune system's just not ready to take on the next thing. Um, you know, it, this has been during the school year. The school year is often when we see strep infections because that's when kids are kind of congregated together um, indoors. And so, you know, school's about to let out. So maybe we'll get some relief from our from our frequent strep infections. Um, but I, at this point, I don't know that I can blame blame it on the pandemic anymore. Although I like to blame things on the pandemic, but <laughs> probably, probably not accurate. <laughs> And thank you so much, Tess. This is such valuable information for all of us. So you were mentioning something important that's happening with a cousin to whooping cough. That's right. So, um, you know, so we were having this this sort of series of these talks about strep because we were seeing a lot of strep. And just in the past few weeks, we've been seeing a lot of something called Bordetella paraprotussis, which is kind of a mouthful. Um, so uh, pertussis is, is otherwise known as whooping cough. Um, and it belongs to a family of bacteria, one of which is its little cousin, paraprotussis. And so um, all the hospitals, in discussing with, with some of the other infectious disease doctors in town, um, every, everybody's seeing an uptick in paraprotussis cases right now. So it looks like we may be having a little local outbreak of paraprotussis. How serious is that? Um, so paraprotussis is pretty similar to regular pertussis or whooping cough, um, although often is a little bit milder. So the issue with uh, pertussis and with paraprotussis is um, one is that little babies uh, who have small airways uh, can get into trouble because the secretions that you make with these illnesses are very sort of thick and stick and sticky and gluey, and they can be really difficult for them to clear. So it clogs up their, their little airways, their little noses, and, um, and prevents them from breathing. So they may have apneic spells um, or, you know, and, and things like that. So, so little babies are, are at kind of a high risk of the complications from pertussis and from paraprotussis. Older children don't tend to, don't tend to have that, but they have this sort of lingering, annoying, hacking cough that goes on potentially for months. Um, and so, and, and it's quite contagious in its, in its early phase, it's pretty contagious to others. So it will sort of spread quickly um, and, and you'll have a little outbreak. Is that happening in kids who are, and babies who are vaccinated against pertussis? It is. It is. So um, the vaccine, um, so we, 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 we have a vaccine for pertussis, right? We don't have a vaccine specifically for parapertussis, um, but the pertussis vaccine is about 40 to 50% effective against parapertussis. So even if you have good immunity to pertussis, you're not necessarily protected from parapertussis. Mm -hmm. is, is this outbreak, I mean, is, is, it, is it attributed to 
um, hesitancy to vaccines or do we know what's causing this or? No, I think it just managed to, you know, somehow enter enter the, the, the milieu of the community. And, and because, you know, there's not a lot of, it's been a while since we've, I think, had any outbreaks with that. And there's not a lot of pre-existing immunity to it. It's, it's allowed to, to circulate. Um, and as I mentioned, it is fairly, fairly contagious. Um, the question that I'm getting a lot from the emergency room doctors um, and the pediatricians who, who message me are like, you know, what to do about it. So paraprotussis is treated the same way as pertussis. So we typically would use a macrolide antibiotic, azithromycin or erythromycin or clarithromycin to treat it. Um, and, uh, and so in that way, it's pretty much just the same. We, um, they should be you know, excluded from school or childcare for the first uh, 24 to 48 hours of that treatment at least. Um, and then the only difference is that for pertussis, we recommend pretty vigilant prophylaxis of all close contacts or family members. But for paraprotussis, at least in the latest um, red book, doesn't recommend prophylaxis for that. The exception would be if, um, if there are very high risk people in the home, right? So somebody who already has, you know, uh, facial facial nasal anomalies or you know severe lung disease or something like that where or maybe a severe cardiac disease something where if they had breathing trouble that they would really potentially get into 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 a problem um, but we typically don't haven't recommended prophylaxis for paraprotussis since there seems like there's an outbreak I don't know if that's going to change but that's currently the recommendation and are we talking about otherwise healthy grandparents as well if someone's elderly or just if there are comorbidities? Um, yeah, no, that that that's a good question. I think that would apply to them as well. So the, the prophylaxis is often the same, right? It's azithromycin prophylaxis um, for, uh, you know, for, for close contacts. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's essentially would be the same as pertussis. Okay. How serious can this be in children and babies? I mean, most cases are not serious. Most cases are an annoying hacking cough that goes on and on. Um, it can be serious, as I mentioned, especially for babies. Paraprotussis is traditionally not as severe as pertussis. Um, you know, so we don't, we haven't, haven't gotten that excited about it in the past. Um, so it's mostly just an alert to say, hey, this is, this is going around. We're all seeing it. Um, it looks a lot like pertussis. It may look like, you know, asthma or, or you know, other respiratory infections. Um, but so if you're seeing somebody who's having, you know, those kinds of symptoms and this hacky cough, it may be worthwhile, you know, sending, if, if you have access to one of these like respiratory panels, like PCR panels, it is present on that kind of multiplex PCR panel that most hospital-based clinics are doing. Um, and so, and that would give you a clue because it is something that's treatable. And with seeing so many coughs, is there one telltale sign like, hey, this, this kid I think needs to be, I want to see if this is paraprotussis? You know, it's a little bit challenging because, um, because these illnesses in the first, the first several days, you know, the first week of the illness looks a lot like all the other respiratory illnesses, right? It's an upper respiratory illness. It involves a lot of snot um, and a lot of coughing and, uh, and maybe fever. 
but so does the flu, so does RSV, so does COVID. Um, so they they do look pretty much the same. You know, the, the characteristic cough of pertussis and parapertussis is what we call a paroxysmal cough, which is this sort of unrelenting cough where it's hard to catch your breath that occurs in kind of coughing fits so that you're perfectly fine in, you know, and then all of a sudden you get that little throat tickle or whatever. And then it's like cough, 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 like that. Right. And that's sort of the 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 characteristic paroxysmal cough. But that doesn't usually happen until you're, you know, several days or a weekend. Can, can it go away without the antibiotics? Oh, yeah. I mean, it'll go away by itself over time. The, the, the antibiotic essentially may help it to go away a little bit more quickly, um, but mostly just makes you less contagious to other people. Okay. And the other thing is that it is absolutely not uncommon after pertussis or paraprotussis for a person to cough for two, three months. You know, the, the, the respiratory infections continue to haunt us. So I think, you know, good, good hand washing. I, I continue to mask when I'm in like, you know, crowded indoor settings. Thank you so much, Tess Barton, for being here today on Pediatrics Now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.